I'm Father Mitch Packwell, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. We are discussing how to pray through Scripture in particular, and of course, we'd love to have you be part of the show, which you can do by adding your questions or comments by calling one 9460 That's in North America, though. 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, you can still call in, but you have to call 205-271-2980. Country code, by the way, 1. Area code 205 2712980. And of course, that is to call during the live broadcast, which is on Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also send us your questions and comments by email by writing to scripture and tradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now today we're going to start chapter two of my book, Praying the Gospels. Jesus launches his public ministry. And we will be looking at various temptations from the devil that our Lord Jesus faced in the wilderness. Now this book, by the way, it may be a nice tool to follow along with us, and you can get it at EWTNRC.com, where it is item 52687, 52687. It's called Praying the Gospels, uh, Jesus Launches His Ministry. And this is about the early episodes. Now, before we get going, I just want to mention that I've placed this icon of Our Lady of Fatima. If you recall some months ago, we did an EWTN live program in which this icon of Our Lady of Fatima, the Pilgrim Virgin, was introduced by Ukrainian Greek Catholics. And this uh, was written for the Ukrainian Greek Catholic community. And because of that, uh, I've placed it here uh, as a way to remind us to pray for an end of this violence and terrorism that's going on against uh, innocent people in Ukraine. I want to pray for their peace. I want to pray that justice be done by Russia uh, for the people of Ukraine and that this invasion stop and that the territorial integrity of Ukraine be completely restored. There's nothing righteous about their last invasion uh, nor this one. So this is something very important. And of course, also want to remind you that if you would like to help out and support. Um, much help is needed. Our food, water, medicine, clothing, all these things are much needed. You can 
contact the Knights of Columbus. It's K-O-F-C dot org slash Ukraine. So this is from the Knights of Columbus, K-O-F-C dot org. So it's K-O-F-C dot org slash Ukraine. Um, much help is needed, and many people are responding. I saw a picture of Polish moms who took their baby carriages and left them at the train station for any Ukrainian mom to use with her children. This is very important to show charity. This is truly uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and following. Uh, when I was hungry and naked, and thirsty, and sick, and in prison, help me. We're doing it for Jesus by doing it for the Ukrainian people. Now we are beginning today to discuss the temptations in the wilderness. And we are using the story of the temptations in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. We'll do as we did in the last chapter. Go through this verse by verse. So we begin, first of all, with Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2. And this is setting the scene in the wilderness. So it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterward, he was hungry. Now, I want you to try and imagine the scene. I've been so blessed to have gone to the Jordan so many dozens and dozens of times. And I've seen the Jordan uh, in its its length, uh, all the way from its... uh, uh, where it starts, the original fountain, up in the north near the Lebanon border, all the way down to the Dead Sea where the Jordan River ends. And there's a lot of vegetation right on the shores of the river. In fact, in some areas, the place near where our Lord was baptized, there are a lot of reeds because it's a little bit marshy there. in in that area. But then, very short distance from the river, I mean, not far at all, desert begins. So where the water can seep into the soil, green things grow, plants and such. But where the water no longer reaches, it is devoid of vegetation or nearly devoid of vegetation. It's, there's very little rainfall in that region. In fact, the water comes from Mount Hermon, which is, again, up by the border of Syria, Lebanon, and modern Israel. And the snow melt, because it, well, folks don't realize, but Mount Hermon also has a number of ski resorts. You don't think of skiing in the Holy Land, but there's, it's there. Um, and... Uh, so the, the snow melt seeps into the mountain and then through the mountain it goes into the Jordan River. But in the Jordan River Valley, there's very little rainfall. 
Um, the Jordan River Valley is 1,300 feet below sea level. I used to tell my pilgrimage groups as we went down, there's a marker where sea level is. I'd say, make sure the windows stay closed. We are now below sea level. Stupid jokes. Um, but it's uh, just about 20-some miles, just 20 miles or so from Jerusalem. So it's not far from Jerusalem. But it's a steep decline down. Jerusalem is about 2,400 feet above sea level. The Mount of Olives is about 2,600 feet above sea level or so. And then it goes down from the Mount of Olives uh, to the desert where it's 1,300 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. And there is also a big oasis at Jericho. Jericho is an enormous oasis built around another spring of water. And so it's quite lush in Jericho, hot, but lush. Uh, but apart from that oasis and from the river, not much can grow. And this is also the place where the Israelites entered the land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And it's also the location of our Lord's fast for 40 days and nights and his temptations. So try to pick, picture that. In fact, there is a mount of temptation and it overlooks the valley, but it's also very, very arid. It's, it's rock and there's not much, not, not, almost nothing that grows there. At the foot of it, yes, there's, there's vegetation from the Jericho oasis, but on the mountain, there's nothing. It's, it's empty, except for rocks. In fact, there are so many rocks in the country of Israel, the rabbi said, when God created the world, he had two bags of rocks. Unfortunately, one bag broke and fell on Israel, and the other one he distributed to the rest of the world. It's a little exaggeration, but it gives you a picture. Now, this area is also linked with Israel's temptations in the wilderness. It's very important to remember that Israel experienced a lot of temptation when they left Egypt and went into the desert. Now, by the way, the word for wilderness and desert is about the same, mizbar. Mizbar is the same word uh, for desert and wilderness. So, first of all, we can see in Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 to 31, that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. It's actually in, it's not called the Yam Edom, Red Sea. It's called the Yam Suf. Suf is a word for reeds. It's actually an Egyptian word more than a Hebrew word, though the Hebrew borrows it. And they, the sea was there. They couldn't get past it until, uh, so they cried out because the Egyptians were following them and they were trapped at the sea. And this is uh, a very, they cried out in despair. 
Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? You know, that's, that's what they're complaining. And the Lord tells Moses to take his staff and lift it over the sea and a path through the water is made by a strong east wind. And the Israelites go through dry shod. The Egyptians try to follow them and they are drowned. It's very interesting, by the way, that St. Paul um, mentions that in this scene that the people of Israel were baptized into Moses, were baptized into Christ. St. Paul mentions that in the first letter to the Corinthians. They were baptized into Moses and uh, something that I often like to point out, especially when people say, well, baptism means to be immersed. And not necessarily. And it's worth, uh, it, it has a variety of meanings. It can also mean sprinkled and poured. It's used in those ways. It also means waterlogged. But it's worth noting that at the Red Sea, the only people who got immersed in that baptism were the Egyptians. The Israelites were immersed and they stayed dry. The only people actually immersed in that baptism were the Egyptians and they died. But that also becomes a symbol of baptism because we get baptized and we come out saved while our sins are drowned in the water of baptism. So that's a nice little figure there. And then after that, you know, escape from Egypt in Exodus 15, 1 to 21, there are two very ancient hymns. I, these are written by eyewitnesses, the Song of Moses and the Song of Miriam. So uh, Miriam leads the women in praising God for this salvation and Moses leads the whole nation. But with all that success, three days later, the people complain and they give into a temptation to grumble because the water was too bitter to drink. It was alkaline. And you can see alkaline pools, and you can't drink alkaline water. I remember the first time I ever herded cattle, it was to get them away from alkaline water to fresh water. Now, the Lord saved them by having Moses put wood into the water that sweetened it and they could drink it. And they, um, th that was all fine. But then uh, the, the next month, they ran out of food. And they complain in Exodus 15, 22 to 27, that they don't have any food. And it would have been better to stay in Egypt and die there. At least they could have gotten some fish and stuff, you know, and other food. And in response to their second complaint, the Lord sent them manna. And you see that in Exodus 16 with very careful instructions that they did not obey. <laughs> they were told to gather 
enough for each day. Well, they tried to gather extra and it got rotten. But then they were told to gather extra before the Sabbath because they wouldn't get any on the Sabbath. And they didn't do that, so that then they were hungry. You know, it, it's, it was tough to overcome these temptations to do it their own way. And then after they left the original oasis where they found that alkaline water, they went wandering and there, there's no water in the desert. And Sinai, I've driven across Sinai a few times and it is dry. There's not much there uh, for, for drinking. <laughs> there isn't. So at that point, the Lord told Moses to strike a rock in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. Then they have water. Another temptation occurs when they get the Ten Commandments. They agree to do the commandments. They say, whatever the Lord has said, we will do. But then when Moses is up for his second 40 days and nights, and he is, you know, listening to the Lord as to what, how to build a temple and how to worship and such. They grumble. We don't, this Moses, we don't know if he's dead or not. And so they make a golden calf and they give into a temptation to worship an idol in Exodus 32. Then they, when they leave Mount Sinai after they build all that, they, um, uh, they, they get tired of the manna. They haven't eaten manna for a couple of years. They're sick and tired of this manna, even though it's free. They want meat. They want fish. They want vegetables, garlic, cucumbers, melons, all this stuff. And so the Lord becomes very angry with them for complaining about this. And uh, they, they also get some uh, birds at that point. And then we see that Miriam and Aaron envy Moses for his leadership. They want to be leaders. And the, she gets, uh, Miriam gets leprosy in response. And then they are about to enter the promised land. They send spies and they say, no, we can't win. We'll lose to these people. They're too big. And so then they're condemned to wander the desert for 40 years. And that's in Numbers 14. And then three people want to be leaders, Korach, Dathan, and Abiram. And they lead a rebellion about the priesthood. They want to take the priestly power from Aaron and Moses. And so the Lord swallows them up, and the earth swallows them whole. And then again they complain about the food. They want fruit and other stuff. So the Lord sends them a plague of serpents in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. And because uh, they're tired of manna. And finally, their last temptation is to commit adultery and fornication with Moabite women who get them to worship various pagan gods, Baal in Numbers 25. As we think about the desert, it's good to think about all these different times that the people of Israel grumbled and complained against Moses and against the Lord, how they failed to withstand temptation. They gave in to temptation. They didn't keep the first commandment by worshiping only the Lord. That's why they made the golden calf and then worshiped Baal. 
and they failed to take the kingdoms that were offered to them in the land of Canaan because they didn't trust that the Lord could give them victory, even though he had saved them from Egypt, the greatest empire of the time. And it's worth it for us to consider how we are tempted, just like they were. It's not that they were so bad. We fall into the same temptations. Now, we're going to take a little break and we want to come back and consider some ways in which we are tempted just as the ancient Israelites were. And we'll discuss that in a couple minutes. So please stay with us. looking at Israel's history of temptations, we ought to be able to find our own lives in many ways. Think, what are the ways in which you are repeatedly tempted? A lot of sins keep coming back, you know, and it's easy to want to do the same sin over and over again. Are some of these habits and that become very bad habits, difficult to overcome. Are there areas where through either ignorance or an inexperience that you fail to understand God's law? And because you don't understand it, you don't really obey His law and His truth. And have you found that when you give in to temptation, that it leads to other sins. For instance, like where the Israelites started marrying Moabite women and committing and committing adultery with them, and then they started to worship their gods, Baal. Um, consider that your experience is like that of ancient Israel. And in many ways, we in our culture are wandering through a moral desert. We have a lot of people who are promoting sin and it's widespread and they make a huge amount of money. Billions and billions of dollars are made in pornography and materialism and drug use. Billions. Uh, as well as bring something that's deadly in both areas. And one of the things I recommend that as you contemplate Israel in the desert, imagine speaking to our Lord. What would you say to Jesus about the difficulties you have in overcoming your temptations and the difficulties you have in practicing virtue? And simply pray like the publican in Luke 18, verse 13, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay? Just pray, make that prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Now, let's take a look at a second meditation 
still on Matthew 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, again, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterward, he was hungry. Now, a lot of people find this very odd that the Holy Spirit, who had hovered over Jesus in the Jordan River right before this. He had hovered in the form of a gentle dove, is now leading him into the desert to be tempted. It's not a bad question to ask. Why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into temptation? And does this mean that God is tempting Jesus? Is God tempting God the Son? Another question we have to ask then, does that also mean that God tempts us? This is what a number of people sometimes think. God tempts us. Now, Let's take a look at how Scripture answers this question. Take a look at the letter of St. James, chapter 1, verse 13. St. James writes very clearly. Remember, he's one of the uh, uh, early disciples. But he wrote, No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God doesn't tempt anybody. Scripture is explicit and clear. So if that's the case, well, what does it mean to say that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? I am helped in understanding this by an image. You know, the, you know, any analogy is something that gets added but may not be the whole truth, but this gives a, a certain perspective. Think about the way military generals train their soldiers and equip them for war. And one of the last things they want is for the soldiers to be killed or wounded. They don't want them to get hurt. But at the same time, it's very important to remember that they don't train soldiers to fight and to use weapons in order to sit on a military base and get paid by walking on the parade ground. That's not why they're there. Instead, if a nation is attacked, a general leads his soldiers into battle. And, of course, this is quite likely to entail injury and death. That happens in war. It's not the purpose of leading them into battle, but it is an almost inevitable result. The goal of a battle is to defeat the enemy and protect your own nation. That's why they were trained. That's why the officers put the army at risk. 
and often put their own lives at risk. Similarly, think of how our Lord Jesus Christ is invading the earth. He is invading to bring the kingdom of God to sinners. They are already under the kingdom of Satan. We'll talk more about that next week. Satan has sway over much of the world. And Christ is doing an invasion to restore the world back to God. And therefore, he is engaged in a spiritual war. There's no way around it. Evil hates the good. And the good will have to confront evil. This is part of real life. And you don't pretend it's otherwise. So he entered into enemy territory. And Jesus has to defeat Satan and defeat the kingdom of darkness that Satan runs in this world. A system of thought that is evil and decision making. So what you have here is that the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into this major battle. Now, St. Joseph had been directed to protect Christ from these attacks by evil at the time of Herod the Great, when the Holy Innocents were killed. But now Christ is going to confront Satan in these temptations. Now, this understanding does not make it easier to uh, experience the reality of temptation. Just like understanding the purpose of a war doesn't make it less dangerous. Ukrainian people understand what's going on in their war, but it's still dangerous for them. And our Lord found the temptations difficult. That's why he fasted for 40 days and experienced great hunger. Yet it's also going to be from that experience that our Lord adds a petition in the Our Father. The petition, lead us not into temptation. In Greek, me esenenkes hemas eis perasmon. It simply lead us not into temptation. He doesn't pray that the Father not tempt us. The Father will never tempt us. But he might lead us into battle. But Christ, as someone who entered into battle against evil, knows how difficult it is. Exactly as soldiers who are veterans of war know, they know how difficult war is. They don't have romantic notions of how great war is. It's not great. It's awful. But they will go into it because they have to. Now, we have to take a look at our own temptations. Do we, do we think, as I've heard people say, by the way, people have said this to me in a number of circumstances. Well, God must want me to sin. He's let me be tempted, so it's okay if I commit this sin. If he wasn't, he wouldn't let me be tempted. Do you try to sit back and understand your temptation in light of the greatest struggle against sin in the world? You ought to. This is part, this is something bigger than you. And that overcoming uh, temptation is a victory of God's grace in your life. 
and it's a victory for God's goodness. That's what you have to see. It's not that, oh, I'm being tempted, so I just got to give in. No, it's the opposite. You seek the grace of God to overcome it. And does ask yourself this, when you give in to temptation, do you find joy and peace? Well, you might find a little relief at first, but then there's usually shame that goes with giving in to temptations. And instead, see how victory over temptation brings you peace. That brings you joy and makes you a better person, a more integrated person, a more whole and mature person. And so what I'd like you to do is simply pray the Lord's Prayer and especially pray that part, lead us not into temptation. I don't want to be tempted, but if he leads me into a difficult place, I want his grace to strengthen me. And the spiritual armor of faith and hope and the breastplate of salvation and the two-edged sword of the Holy Spirit, which is Scripture, the Word of God, I want that to be what I have to defend myself against temptation and in that way find peace. All right, we're going to stop there and next week we'll start off by discussing why Jesus was tempted by the devil. Why was it? Why did it have to be the devil? That'll be our issue next week. So we'll come back for that. Let's now go to some of your questions and comments. We have Joe on the phone. Joe, where are you calling from? Hello, Father Mitch. I'm calling from Germantown, Pennsylvania, the home of the Shrine of the Miraculous Medal, the National Shrine of the Miraculous Medal. Wonderful. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you for calling. And what's your question or comment today? My question is, why wasn't Moses allowed to go into the promised land? Oh, good, good one. The reason was he disobeyed God. The Lord had told him to speak to the rock and water would flow out. Moses didn't trust that God's word was strong enough to do that. And so he took his staff and struck it twice. And he said, uh, to, the Lord said to Moses, you have not let me show my glory to the people of Israel. I wanted to teach them that my word has the power to give them water. And you used your staff. So for that disobedience, you cannot lead my people with your staff into the promised land. And he died. He saw the land, but he died on Mount Nebo, which is today in the kingdom of Jordan, just a little west of the town of Madaba. And you can go. There's a wonderful church. Uh, there are some ancient churches of St. Moses that are found on that mountain. And then, um, and you can go there, and I've offered Mass a number of times, okay? Thanks for your question. That's a good one. We have Carol on the line. Carol? Yes. How are you? I'm just fine, Father Pacwa. Where are you calling from? Sterling, Illinois. And you've good. been a guest in our town at St. Mary's. 
okay. <laughs> I do remember that, of course. Some Father great, Tom great Mayo. folks out there. Yeah. And what is your question or comment? Uh, what, what are we to think about why God permits such aggression on Ukraine? Mm. First of all, God does not command uh, Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine, does he? And the other nations have told Putin that it's wrong to do. The Ten Commandments make it very clear that you shall not murder. And with all these things going on, Putin uses his free will and chooses to do evil. And there's no way around it that he has that free will. Not at all unlike the way Judas Iscariot was used to do evil against Christ our Lord. Now, from that evil, our Lord was able to do great good, to redeem the whole world. But it was not without a lot of suffering by Christ. He underwent tremendous pain because of the treachery and thievery of Judas Iscariot. And it's made even worse by betraying Jesus with a kiss, a sign of friendship. And that betrayal caused our Lord pain, but also brought us salvation. Now, I have no idea what our Lord will do with the horrible suffering that Ukrainians are undergoing. And by the way, this is not the first time the Ukrainian people have been really tough. This is something where they have experienced persecution since communism came to power in 1917. And the, the, the Stalin had starved six million Ukrainians to death because he wanted to break up their commitment to private farms. And they, the Ukrainian Christians have been martyred by the millions. The suffering that has gone on there has been a, a horrendous thing, and now they're suffering again. Now, why? what other reasons that, that uh, can happen from this, this will depend on how Ukrainian people respond to God in the midst of this. He'll teach them. It's not really for us so much to know. It's for the Ukrainians and God to encounter each other and understand the suffering. But certainly, during this Lent, they are living the Stations of the Cross. They are entering into the Passion of Christ. Let us pray that they have an Easter that brings them joy. And let's be part of doing what we can to help them. All right, I have to take a little break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. 
All right, just want to let you know that I'd love to have you join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We will have the president of the Catholic League, Bill Donahue, discuss and clarify facts and true causes of the clergy sexual abuse scandal. He's got a book on this. It's absolutely brilliantly done. He's a sociologist, and we strongly urge you to watch that program. All right. We also have another phone call. We have Nancy on the line. Nancy, where are you calling from? Schenectady, New York. New York. Great. What's your question or comment? Well, first, I want to tell you we enjoy your program, but we also miss you not saying Mass on Wednesday morning. <laughs> well, we'll see if we can get me back in there doing a little bit more often. Yes, my question is, I don't understand purgatory. I'm so confused. Mm -hmm. um, what part of it don't you understand? When I die, I know my soul will go up to I'm assuming to the gates of heaven and I'll be judged if I'm going to go to purgatory mm -hmm. or hell. If mm -hmm. I go to purgatory, I know I have to stay there a while. Is there a fire in purgatory or is it just... Mm -hmm. is, it, is it a fire or what? Uh, let me just say this. In the first letter to the Corinthians... Um, St. Paul describes it as a cleansing fire. Um, I believe this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he puts it this way. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, so he says now... You build on a foundation, that's Christ, using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that you built on the foundation, the foundation of Christ, survives, you will receive a warp reward. But if a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, um, this is the image that St. Paul uses. And one of the reasons for this image is that fire purifies. Think back on how in the uh, Psalms, Psalm 119 and a variety of others, it talks about how the Lord purifies uh, us the way gold is purified seven times. Now, how do you purify gold? You melt it and any of the dross comes to the top and gets skimmed off. Same with silver. Any uh, other dross, the, the dirt that's there, that comes to the top and you skim it off till you get pure silver and pure gold, okay? And that's what the Lord is looking for in each one of us. Now, how uh, literal the fire is, I don't fully understand myself 
because, of course, it's our soul, not gold or, or actual wood. Those are images for the quality of our work and the quality of the way we have served our Lord. But, any, but you can be sure of this, any kind of impurity in our lives will be removed like dross is removed from silver or gold. And then the pure gold is left behind. There's no room in heaven for impurity. Nothing unclean can enter heaven. That's what the book of Revelation says. And giving up some of our impurity and foolishness will certainly be experienced as painful. But it's the kind of pain that will ultimately cause us relief. Um, it hurts. I, I can remember to this day how much it hurt when my grandmother or my mother washed me behind my ears. I couldn't see the dirt. I never thought it was there, but they had to scrub hard because I got it really worked in. And it, it just hurt to get it out, but you know, they made sure that I felt clean and then I was better off for being that clean. That's the way it'll be in purgatory. Somewhat painful to get rid of the impurities, but the result of it will be a great relief to have them gone. Maybe to think of it also as taking a splinter out of your finger. That hurts and people flinch. Again, I can remember getting splinters, my mother removing them, and I would flinch because I didn't want to pull it out. But I sure didn't want to leave it in there either. These are little ways that we can begin to understand how it's something that shouldn't be in us, and then we can have it removed. Uh, and that's a great relief. Okay, so think of it that way. All right, that's how I think of it anyway. I have an email from Herman. It says, Father Mitch, our granddaughter thinks God hates her because he gave her cancer. How do I minister to her? First of all, you know, um, why does she think God gave her the cancer? Where did she get that idea from? Now, certainly he permitted this to happen, but I don't believe that God gave it to her. Cancer is when cells grow too quickly and they grow out of proportion to their role in the body. That's a very simplistic way to understand cancer. And this is something that cells are supposed to grow, especially when you're young, but some of them grow crazy and it becomes harmful. And this is not something that God caused her and said, I don't like you, I'm going to give you cancer. That's just not true. And one of the things about dealing with cancer, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, she's going to the doctor and such. And there are a lot of things that 
You know, whenever we have different disorders and diseases, you know, medical people can learn from it and it can help us and help others. So, for instance, when I got rheumatoid arthritis, which isn't as bad as cancer, but it's painful um, and can be debilitating, I said, okay, let the Lord use me for research. And so I took a number of experimental drugs, some of which worked very, very well. And um, this is, uh, it may be that what she's going through will be there to help other people. Secondly, the suffering she's undergoing is something that she can offer up for others. God doesn't want her to waste it. He doesn't think that she's bad. He can use her suffering and ask her to offer up her suffering for the children who have lost their homes and sometimes their parents and some of them their own lives in Ukraine. Help her to see that her suffering can be for a greater good. All of us have to learn that. I'm very sorry that she has to learn at a very early age, but it's still something that is not punishment by God and He doesn't hate her but he wants her to use this for others in a variety of ways. That's what I ask. We have another phone call. We have Noria on the line. Yes, Father. Hi, where are you calling from? California. And what's your question? Father, I am homebound, but I have, uh, and the, my friends are, uh, I want to go to church to receive Holy Communion, mm-hmm. but uh, I can't because uh, I don't want to drag these ladies with me who doesn't want to go to confession, and uh, they are divorced. And, uh, yeah. Is there, <laughs> is there someone else that you can ask to help bring you over to church? Oh, I don't know, Father. I, I have nobody else. I tell you what, uh, here's what I would do then. And a lot of parishes do this. Call up the pastor or the parish and ask if there are people at church. They're already going to be going to church. And ask if there'd be somebody at church who would be willing to pick you up and bring you to church with them. There are probably some other parishioners close to where you live, and they, they might be able to help you. Father, um, I, I, am that, the one who, I am the one who is taking them to church before, but yeah. now I cannot drive anymore. But, so. and, and so now it's time for them to help and, and bring you to church. So yes, call Father. up the parish and ask them for help. And this is what we as parishes need to do. We do this in a lot of the churches I go to, and it's a good service to have there. Look for that and uh, so that you can come back and receive our Lord. That would be a very good thing. All right, Noria. 
keep you in prayer. We'll, we'll pray that to inspire, the Lord inspires somebody to bring you on, uh, use their generosity. It might be even a few people taking turns. It's a good thing. All right, um, something that I'd like to do, I have this icon of Our Lady Fatima. I'd like us all to pray for the people of Ukraine. Help out, doing what we can to get them the supplies they need. But I'd like, this is a prayer written by Ukrainian Greek Catholics um, in the Akathist hymn. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, to you, our great defender and constant intercessor, we sing a hymn of thanksgiving and praise for your revelations at Fatima to us, your children, indicating thereby the way of penance and amendment of life in Christ and with you. We magnify our Savior and exclaim, Rejoice, O Theotokos of Fatima, unassailable wall of protection of your people of Rus. May Almighty God bless you and all the people of Ukraine, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, we ask you to keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill so we can pay our bills and bring these shows to you. Thank you. Thank you.